0: You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. Like Elliot said earlier in the video, my name is Andrew. I'm a student pastor here at Seabreeze. And today we're continuing our series that we've titled Street Smart. So, being street smart over the years has been the name that we give people who understand how the world works and who have successfully navigated both the good and the bad. In a lot of ways, those who have street smarts have garnered wisdom, and they use it. So in this series, our guide has been the book of James, which is widely regarded as the wisdom book in the New Testament. We've been seeking to determine how God says to navigate the complexities of life and gain God-honoring street smarts. I'm a coffee snob. I, it's hard to admit in public, but... It's true. Last year, I found out that it is actually cheaper to source my own green coffee beans and roast them myself rather than get pre-roasted specialty coffee, and I've never turned back. For my birthday, my, my parents got me a coffee roaster, and my wife got me this really cool poster that shows the different coffee tasting notes. You see it behind me, and there's a lot. Uh, so far, I can make out good, bad, bad, burnt and acidic, so I've got a ways to go. But still, my coffee is my favorite coffee because I can roast it however I want, which means I'm forever at odds with the big box coffee retailers. But as a culture, we've we've done a word swap. We've replaced the word snob, which is hard to say in public, with the word enthusiast. So... I'm also a car enthusiast, a motorcycle enthusiast, and a guitar enthusiast, but I'm willing to bet that you're an enthusiast about some things, too, whether it's cars, coffee, uh, surf retailers, uh, whether it's fine art, wine, whatever. (laughs) We all have our favorites. They're the things that we prefer. You can prefer to shop local or go big box. You can... Prefer Folgers over Starbucks. I think both are gross. (laughs) But either way, we have our own favorites. And when it comes to preferences of taste, I think that's okay. But has that biased attitude worked its way into places in our lives that it really shouldn't be? Has it creeped in? Well, James seems to think so. So today, we're going to be tackling the topic of favoritism. It's a serious topic. In James 2, verse 1, we see this. My brothers and sisters, believers in our Lord, our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. As has been said before, James can be a pretty blunt guy. Here he cuts straight to the point, and here it is. Favoritism is wrong, and as Christ followers, it is off limits to us. Now, favoritism is what happens when you make a decision about a person based on appearances, what you can see on the outside. And the word favoritism is pretty interesting. It comes from two different words that have been stuck together. The first one means face or appearance, and the other one means to take hold of. And so we practice favoritism when we get stuck on the exterior of a person without considering who they are on the inside. It's really using their appearance to make a decision about them. And often this decision is about their worth or their value to us or their importance in our own eyes, and it dictates often how we treat them. So when we consider appearance, we are being very human. What is favorable and what is attractive actually changes from culture to culture. It's a very fleeting thing, and God doesn't evaluate a person based on their looks, but still we do it. In the Old Testament, God's people, Israel, were known for being pretty easily duped by appearances. Their first king, although he looked the part, was not devoted to God, and the nation ended up paying for it in the long run. So when God decided to replace him as king, he led his prophet Samuel through the decision-making process. And basically, this is what God said. Samuel was told to go to a man named Jesse, who had multiple sons. One of Jesse's sons would be the next king of Israel. And Samuel is kind of told to have all the sons come and walk in front of him and that God would reveal which one would be the king. And actually, it's really interesting. The first son walks in front of Samuel, and his thought is basically, now that guy looks like a king. And God says this in response to Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. It says, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God had actually chosen the youngest son, David, the last in the line, to be the new king. And now if God could be specific with Samuel that the new king would come from a man named Jesse, why didn't he just tell him up front that it was the youngest son, David, who would be the king? Well, God wanted to make his point very clear. He cares more about what is on the inside of a person than what is on the outside. God wanted a king who would be devoted to him first, who would live by faith. The first king of Israel, he was physically head and shoulders above the rest of Israel, but his heart was far from God. David, he was kind of short, but he was devoted to God, and that was what was important. God chose short and devoted David. It's interesting that through this process, even a prophet of God could get sidetracked by appearance from what is most important to God. And back to James, he says something interesting in this first verse. He calls Jesus our glorious Lord. And when I first read this, I just thought he was using flowery language. But the reality is is that it serves an important purpose in this verse. James is telling us that as Christ's followers... We know what real glory looks like because we have come to know Jesus Christ. In his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has shown power and self-sacrificial love in its greatest form. And since we know what real glory looks like, we should not get duped by counterfeit glory. And that would be things that impress from the outside, like beauty, money, or social status. Judging someone's value based on the outside, is something that the world does because it hasn't seen what real glory actually looks like. And James makes it clear in this first verse, favoritism and faith in Jesus Christ, they really don't mix. And I think of it this way, if you've ever lived upstairs and you've had to move a fridge, you know how important it is to keep both hands on the fridge, right? You wouldn't try to grab something else on the way out the door. If you let the fridge drop, you would lose your grip and cause a lot of damage. Our faith in Christ requires the same concentration that it takes to really move something that you need both hands for. And James is telling us that we cannot hold on to judging based on appearances while holding on to our faith in Christ, that they're mutually exclusive, they don't mix. That's not how we do things in the kingdom of God. That's that's really what James is trying to communicate. We cannot play favorites and have a firm grasp on our faith at the same time because favoritism is wrong, and favoritism also reveals a faith problem. In James chapter 2, verses 2-4, through four, he says this, Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit at the floor by my feet, Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Where was this taking place? At a meeting of Christ followers who regularly get together to worship, talk about, and seek to obey the God of the universe that they actually can't see. And so why did this misguided usher, what did did they do at this meeting? Well, they basically showed special attention to a wealthy person and brushed off the poor person. Now, James is showing an example that is really easy for us to do. It's helpful to remember, actually, in this passage that that the church at the beginning was very, very poor. Any new influx of cash would be really, really helpful to them. What we see here is someone from the church elevating and honoring the rich man and simultaneously pushing down and dishonoring the poor man. Now, some of you might think in their situation that makes good business sense, but in God's economy, he is more concerned that people are treated rightly. So the outward speech and action of this exchange really shows the the heart of a person that's trusting in what they can see. In this environment, these two men, they actually should have been on equal standing, but for personal or corporate gain, one was cast aside because of their utility. Their, Their utility was viewed as being really low. And I want, to pay, I want you to pay attention to this because it's really important to understand what James is doing in this passage. As I've read this book, James has really amazed me in his ability to communicate really difficult and pointed truths. And when you bluntly tell people not to do something, they usually do one of two things. Either they agree with you and assume that you're not talking to them, or they get defensive. So what James does is he asks a few questions to really disarm the audience and help them understand that their faith problem came from really a wrong perspective. And that's another thing that favoritism does. It reveals a wrong perspective. We've already seen this first question that James asked, and it's in verse 4. It says, have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, the things that make us distinct are not bad. Uh, There are other uh, translations that translate the word discriminated here as, have you not made distinctions? And so, distinctions are not bad. God created over 900,000 different types of bugs. I would have created like three tops, right? So, we're all different because of God's infinite creativity. And without categories or distinctions, James couldn't have even made this example because he used the category of rich and poor. And so some categories are genuinely helpful. Anyone who's raised kids, or is currently raising kids, or seen people raise kids, understand this. I've taught my kids about strangers, friends, family, right, wrong. Categories are how we really understand the world around us. We We learn a category, and then we begin to fill in the details. We start with basic information and make more and more connections so in this church that James is speaking to, there was more going on than just discerning similarities and differences between things. By making distinctions, they'd become judges. And what do judges do? They render decisions on people. Judging is one of those words that can be good and bad. It's like the word pride. There can be good pride and bad pride. There's also good judgment and poor judgment. So good judgment looks like this. If you have kids and they have disobeyed, willfully disobeyed, then you need to render judgment and consequences. If you're a boss and someone violates a policy, I mean, you really need to render a judgment. You have the authority to render a judgment in that arena. But James' audience were not exercising good judgment. They were judging with evil thoughts. How? Well, they were rendering judgments beyond the scope of the evidence that was in front of them and way far beyond their jurisdiction. The physical evidence would have told them about economic status, but they judged value. They judged worth. Their assessment of wealth and poverty probably would have been accurate, but the issue was what the information led them to do. Was the issue that the rich man was honored? No actually we're supposed to outdo each other in showing honor to other Christ followers it wasn't necessarily bad that they honored the rich it was bad that they dishonored the poor and James showed that he showed that fact with more questions so they continue in James verses 5 through 7 he says listen my dear brothers and sisters has not god chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith And to inherit the kingdom he has promised those who love him. But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So the rhetorical answer to all of these rhetorical questions is yes. Aren't the poor that you're dishonoring your brothers and sisters in Christ? Well, yes, they were. Aren't they the ones that are actually rich in faith in your congregation? Well, yes aren't the wealthy ones that you're honoring the ones who are trying to to do the church harm? Well, yes, in this instance, they really were. We don't have the full context of what is going on behind this, but it is really clear that there was a wealthy crowd persecuting the church at this time. And when it comes to the things that are most important to God, the poor Christians in that congregation actually had more of the things that were important to God. They They chose to praise God in the midst of low circumstances and have faith in Him. And so, they experienced more in their relationship with God. They had greater faith because they trusted God in faith more. You can't see that from their appearance. It wasn't shown through the clothes that they wore. And Right after college, I worked as a campus minister at my university, and each year, our staff went on a mission trip together uh, to a small communist nation that's just south of Florida. Okay. The things that I saw there really challenged my faith in a good way. The people that we worked with, they really didn't have a lot. But I saw this incredible amount of joy come from their lives because they they got to to know Jesus in ways that I had never experienced. Uh, Their faith in Christ was very real, and they were risking a lot to follow him. And they made these verses come to life for me personally because they chose to love God and trust him despite their circumstances. They really were the poor in the eyes of the world, but they had rich faith. And James, in this passage, used those questions to point out that, that their favoritism really revealed a wrong perspective, that it was, it was wrong of them to have that perspective. But there's also an even bigger issue with favoritism that we really need to take to heart. And that's that favoritism reveals our inconsistency. In James 2, verses 8 through 10, he says, If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. Now, God encourages us to to be genuinely helpful to people that we encounter. And James really wanted the church to honor and respect guests and the people that would attend. It's as if he's saying, I get it if you're loving your neighbor as yourself to that wealthy person. Jesus told us even to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. When you do that, you're doing well. You're doing what's right. But, they were not consistent in the way that they treated everyone. Someone stepped on the church grounds and was treated rightly, and the other was cast aside. That was sin. In fact, it was unloving and disrespectful to that person. And when we're choosing favoritism, we are choosing actually to love one person and not love another person. We, we can't say I'm loving my neighbor to one group and then practically hate another group because we have judged them to be beneath us. That's, the simple reality is that no one is beneath anyone in God's sight. We are all on the same level before him. And we're reminded of that here in verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. One sin breaks the whole law. One wrong thought, motive, word, or action. I, we've all done that. So if there was one overarching label or category to put humanity in, it would be lawbreakers. And at this point, I think James has us where he wants us. The question that we're motivated to answer is, okay, what do we need to do? What do we need to do? Well, you should remember God's mercy. Remember God's mercy toward you. The last two verses of this passage, James 2, 12 through 13, He says, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, when I think of the words law and freedom, I don't think of two interchangeable words. They're not synonyms to me. Usually, a law dictates what you must do or must not do. Our actions are judged based on whether we follow those laws. And in reality, laws are boundaries. So those lead to usually less freedom, not more. So what is it about this law that James is talking about that gives us more freedom? Well, when someone is under this new law, it leads to freedom from what truly holds us captive. That's our bondage to sin and the eternal consequences that come from its presence in our lives. When you choose to follow Jesus Christ, you are choosing this new law, based on his mercy because of Christ's sacrifice. Your new life motto is love your neighbor as yourself. And it's really helpful if we remember that we're all on the same playing field. The reality of living under God's mercy should seep into every area of our life and it should color the way we see every single person. And practically, if you don't remember God's mercy toward you, then you won't be able to do what God calls us to do in these verses, which is speak and act consistently. Let's look at James 2, 12 through 13 again. He says, Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, these verses, they read like a threat. But James is pointing out a reality. Those who understand that they have and will receive mercy They speak and act one way, and those who have not received God's mercy or forget it live and speak a different way, and that's with favoritism. Each one of us is inconsistent in the way that we love people, and it's shown by the way that we speak and the way that we act, not just with our neighbors who are out there, but often with the ones that we share a home with. If you're married and your spouse is acting The way you want it's really easy to respond to them with kindness, but when they do something that frustrates you or they make a face that lets you know they're upset, it's it's much harder to be consistent in the way that you treat them. Honestly, defensiveness kicks in, and it's it's much easier to become harsh with that person. And it's the same if you live with brothers and sisters, parents, or roommates. Here's one that hits close close home to me as well. It's easy to be kind to a waiter when they're really attentive or to a customer service rep on the phone when they're doing what we want. But what happens when they deliver news that we don't like? Whatever we wanted to have happen doesn't. And I mean, personally, I feel the anger start to rise or get frustrated. And to make ourselves feel better, we take it out on whoever is around. Either that person on the other end of the phone that you can't see um, or the people around you. So I want to challenge you to treat the people you encounter consistently. Not identically. Each person and situation is unique. But the goal is to ask, how, what would it look like to show mercy to this person that's in front of me? As you think about your relationships and interactions, who do you treat the best? The goal is to raise that you treat everyone else to that level not the other way around. It's a high-water mark. Don't treat people poorly for consistency's sake. If you're going to fail on this one, fail forward, not backwards, okay? It's a caveat. But I can't remember a time in my life when it was easier to categorize someone and then look down on them because of it. The cure for favoritism that comes from a place of evil judgment really is mercy. If you've never experienced mercy to its fullest extent, then you cannot consistently display mercy to other people. In the quiet of our own hearts, each one of us needs to be brutally honest about where we show favoritism. If you have never experienced the full force of mercy that comes from a relationship with God, I want to encourage you to really look into what a relationship with God is. And if you've decided to follow Jesus and you still struggle with being consistent with how you treat other people, You're not alone, but we've got work to do. I encourage you to seek God's daily help to remind you of the value that he places on other people so that we can speak and act consistently with the mercy that we have been shown. A street smart person really is a merciful person. When we dishonor or we prejudge a person based on their appearance, we sin, making ourselves to be judged over them and revealing our wrong perspective and our inconsistent love. Instead, we should view others through the lens of God's mercy and love people consistently, regardless of their appearance or utility. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for what James has taught us today. God, I pray that you would reveal to each one of us a next step that we can take in the area of favoritism. God, I pray that uh, if later on today we're thinking about this. I, I pray you would bring up circumstances, situations, and specific people that pop to mind whenever we think about the words that James gave us, and that you would help us to figure out what it would look like to really, first of all, remember your mercy towards us and to speak and act consistently to them. God, we we need your help to do this. I pray that you would help us to to really be brutally honest in our own hearts to discern where we we really need to do work with you in this area. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church Podcast.